Hello and welcome to the Naval Air Podcast with your hosts Mike and Scott. Hey Scott, how you doing? Hey, hey Mike, how are you doing? Uh, hanging in. Yep, Same that's my stuff. that's my uh, my mantra as all as Dif- well. Different day. Um, yep. So we're going to continue talking about Scott's extra experiences because you guys. I've already told all my stories. Well, not all my story, but you know, we've already, I've already covered my stuff in depth, and we have, uh, we have Scott to. Uh, he's going to tell us about some stuff. But real quick, we did get an email. Oh, cool! I remember we got an email from. It was from Drew. Uh, we we read his email last couple episodes ago. Um, he was the guy that uh, recently been in. Uh, and was saying that some of the stuff hadn't changed and we were all like, okay, I find that, you know, hard to believe. But uh, he asked a question about uh, fan room counseling. Mm. So he says he would hear, they would always hear stories about how harsh the old Navy was and how much harder the older generation had it. As far as discipline goes, we would always hear of fan room counseling where sailors would hash it out with a fight. Have you ever heard or seen that happening in our time? Ash chewings are still a very relevant form of counseling, but I assume the older generation would get away with more. So, when I was first in, it was also something that we heard about, right? The Rocks and yep. Shoals, the Rocks and Shoals Navy. Right. Um, I never saw two dudes duke it out that was not inside a boxing ring. Um, I never had a chief see, see a chief take someone out back, rough them up a bit to get them to play ball. Um, I think that even predates us. Yeah, that was something that I never uh, <clears throat> heard of it happening or witnessing or hearsay or even hearsay. Yeah. Uh, especially in... Um, the community that we were in and it was also um i guess presented to us that uh fighting was a big no-no correct both both parties would get in trouble yep exactly not not like where the second person gets in trouble like you see all the time you know the instigator gets away with it no it was a i think it came i think it came from the no the zero tolerance stuff um you know, with the drug use business. I mean, now I hear zero tolerance is even worse, right? You know, alcohol. You know, well, I mean, no, everything has just gotten. No one gets drunk I, anymore. I think, I think uh, everything has just gotten a little bit too far to the extreme on the other side of the coin, in my opinion. But, yeah. you know, it's a different era, a different time that you and I served. And the social norms are uh, obviously uh, different you know, good, bad, or indifferent, depending on what your particular persuasion is, let's say. Yes. Um, But yeah, I think the fan room counseling is sort of a, uh, a cliche. Um, Even when Mike and I were uh, young guys in the Navy, it just, uh, fighting was just not really excusable for really any, any reason. Or if things got that far out of control, discipline wise, I think, your command had bigger problems than yes. uh, just getting some. Because really, I mean, if somebody is not doing what they're supposed to be doing, it's like, well, uh, 
time to admin sep this guy and get rid of him. Yes. Because, I mean, we had one dude like that. I might have already mentioned it. We had, you know, by the time our debt deployed, I mean, heck, he even deployed on deployment day. And he was with, he was in the cruise book. He was in our cruise book picture. But by the time we got to the PI, you know, a week later, after we left he Hawaii, gone. he was out. He was toast. They yeah. finally they finally had enough of his nonsense and just chipped him out. And and and, the, and go ahead. And I was going to add that I think that is very few and those kinds of uh, incidents were few and far between in the uh, community. And I say community, I mean the H two yes. lamps Mark one community that. Most for the most part, good order and discipline was the order of the day. Very, yeah. very few people were going to mast, you know, for non-judicial punishment. You had people occasionally that would uh, pop positive for a uh, controlled substance. Uh, yeah, for <laughs> Drugs, you know, what, the Navy. Can, most of, and ninety-nine percent of the time back in our day, it was marijuana, and uh, yeah, that was the vast majority of the discipline thing was was usually a a, a positive on a, a year analysis um yeah or maybe maybe the occasional uh, we had one guy that got a dui on base not an aw but um the they it was kind of unusual in my squad and we we had aos which are aviation ordinance men and they were assigned to the not to the maintenance department it was really kind of strange they they didn't assign them to the maintenance department in our squadron, HSL 37. They assigned them to the operations department. So interesting. They actually worked in the AW shop. It was really kind of weird. Interesting. But we only had like four of them, I think. You had a first class. Yeah, um, not a lot of a not... second and two third classes. That was it. That's all we had. And really, their real job was to just train us for the low team. Because the first class was on, sh they were all on shore duty. They didn't deploy. I don't remember. They any were really AOs there to in my squadron. And they were on shore duty, right? They were there to train you guys. I don't remember any. I don't remember any AOs. We we our our training came in at Pearl Harbor for your torpedo for load, torpedo load. loads and stuff. Yeah, we did it on the boat. Well, maybe they had somebody who, like, you know, I told you I went to that school at yes, Fort Island. Fort Island. was at the sub base, you know, and the instructor was a, a torpedo man, sub, uh, submariner. But Hawaii was unique, right, because, um, you know, a lot of the, the training you had to do, you had to do there. They didn't want to have to ship you out Correct. somewhere else. So what they did is they, they put four AOs in the squadron so that they could train us because they didn't do anything as far as, like, all the – uh, like we had a ready service locker and that was up to the, um, the ASDO who in our squad and also, which was kind of weird, the ASDO during the daylight hour date, pretty normal, normal working hours was always an AW. Really? And, yep. And his responsibility was to go, uh, to, you had to take the temperature in the, uh, ready service locker, I think like couple times a day and log it interesting yeah it's just a different you know we had a different way of doing things out there you know for whatever reason oh yeah and it, it worked you know pretty well and i think i think what it is is that aws understood the flight schedule and that whole thing and during flight operations um you know they could they could delegate stuff to them and they they would know what was going on 
you know, the, the SDO or whatever. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, all right. Well, before before we get started on the real reason we're, you know, talking today, I want to thank Drew for asking the question. Yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, and, you know, yeah, the, the the myth goes farther back than us. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, Which I think is a good thing. Yeah. And, you know, it's, and it's it, the comment about the dude that was on my debt that got, you know, sent home, you know, the, that ended up screwing up some, screwing over somebody else had to come replace them on short notice. Right. right? So right. is they, I like to think and they didn't mess the around. That's the reason why you have to have discipline in the yes. military because somebody else is going to have to pick up your slack. Yes. Yes. I'm sure that happens now. All right. People, people become non-deployable for multiple reasons and. Someone else gets left holding the bag. So, yes, Drew, thanks for the question. I hope, you know, the answer. You have some other stuff here, but uh, I'll answer that separate. You know, I do when to email you back. I do have one little interesting tangent, though, about uh, a good order and discipline thing that um, happened Let's hear later it. on when we were actually four deployed in Japan where a guy got sent back off a of debt. He actually stole a part out of our helicopter and put it in their helicopter. What was it? The master caution panel. What? You know, the thing with all the lights yes, up on the I know what panel? <laughs> I was thinking something stupid like the eight-day clock or, you know, something. No, no. <laughs> and it was so weird how we figured it out. Um, they were having some problems, our sister debt, with uh, their aircraft that I didn't know any of this was going on until later on, but um, apparently their master caution panel was not working. Like when they do the, you do the press to test and all that. Yep. It wasn't working. So something in the circuitry for that. And then it wouldn't indicate, you know, it's not, then it's not going to indicate that, uh, that you got a problem. Right. So we were actually going to go do a night flight. And what we're going to do is go, I forget how we wound up where we were over there, but uh, over at the, the Yakuska, the main naval base, they have a helicopter pad, and the pilots were going to were gonna practice uh, approaches to it. They had to actually have a tack-in approach to that, and for some reason, that's what they want to go do, and when they were going to go do something else or whatever. So um, we were flying around, and uh, I forget what happened, but like we started having some issues and uh, the uh, the master caution panel wasn't working like it was supposed to. I, I don't remember the hows or the whys or whatever, but they noticed something was screwed up. So we aborted and went back to Atsugi and shut down and then they're working on it, you know, and I'd already left and everybody, I think one of the, uh, the other AW, uh, Gail Vasquez, I don't know if you knew Gail or not, but he got tasked with... Uh, doing the D&T once they got this thing fixed or whatever. I just went back to the to the barracks and um, come to find out when they took the part off, you know, because they got to send it to supply, they have the, the you know, the maintenance, the VIDSMAF form has... Yeah, part re- number on it, a serial number. Part yeah. number and a serial number. And the chief, I guess, when he's going to order a new one, he's like looking at the serial number and he's like, wait a second, that doesn't match what's in our, you know, the logbook. Right, because you also have the aircraft logbooks that you have to log in there that you're sending out a part, right? Yep, yep. And 
he's like doing that and he's like wait a second <laughs> something screwed up here and uh he i don't know if he sus- suspected it or what he got a hold of the other debt chief and they uh went over to a helicopter and took out that master caution panel and guess what that was the one that belonged in our helicopter oh yeah you talk about the you know what hitting the fan big time <laughs> needless to say oh you know what they did to him so this is ae then right say again a- an ae electrician yeah an aean who'd already been to mast and already been busted before oh my gosh okay for something for something else i think he was ua or something like that um and he was kind of a dirt bag anyway um because uh, one of my buddies was his roommate for a while, and he was just like a dirt, real dirt bag. So, well, they they uh, they sent a message loud and clear to him. Not that they didn't immediately send him back to Hawaii. He went to the correctional custody unit in Yokosuka, Japan, for for thirty days. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. Is that and is he, that considered he, restriction or that's jail? No, that's like the disciplinary barracks. You know, okay. Like, uh, you got to muster, you know, like six times, times a, a day, day yeah. and you got to have a complete sea bag when you go and all that other kind of stuff. And, uh, he wound up getting a big chicken dinner <laughs> that when, when they sent him back to, uh, to Hawaii. <laughs> Was that what he wanted though? Cause sometimes they do shit like that. Cause that's what they want. They really, they just, they just want out. That could be, uh, he was just a young, stupid kid. The big chicken dinner. See that? If if you do it differently, you can get out as an admin set under general under, under honorable conditions. Or yeah. Other than honorable, which you know, which not no, you can get admin set for under honorable conditions. So yeah, too. yeah. I mean, so there's there's something there's other ways, but but a BCD that's that's like being a felon. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. It does not. <laughs> It does not help you. That just that, that follows you around for for good because they. What's the you, nature of just your about every job application? Did you serve in the military? Yes. No. Yes. Yes. Nature of discharge. discharge. BCD. Uh, oops. <laughs> or you just got to you just start lying, I guess. But you know. Right. But the, but if you lie and then they find out, then yeah. they're going to fire you. That's right. It's a chance or you take, right? You're not going to get a job that requires any responsibility other than flipping a hamburger. Or you might move up to fries, you know. Yeah, you might get the fry later. <laughs> yeah, but you know, some you know, just when you're just young and you have no idea. Youth is wasted on the young. You have no idea. Yep. You, have, you don't know That's what right. you don't know. And, That's right. You know, you can just mellow out with age, and you figure crap out. Sometimes too late. Sometimes in time. All right. So tell us, tell us about your trip to. Uh, So as we we discussed in uh, uh, the podcast uh, previous to the last one, um, I had uh, completed my fiasco of a detached, my initial SH-2F deployment, which was kind of like a two and a half month short cruise, followed by like four or five short cruises that took us into the... um, latter part of the spring and uh i got off of that detachment they basically disbanded it you know it wasn't like i just let everybody the whole thing was just disbanded 
because um, we've been together almost about a year at that point, not quite a year, maybe about nine months. So I went back up to the AW shop and, uh, you know, my, my aspiration was really to go on a four deployed debt. Our squadron had two four deployed de detachments in, uh, at Sugi, Japan, uh, Naval Air Facility at Naval Air Facility at Sugi. And they were associated with, uh, the carrier battle group that is home ported in Yakuza, which at the time was the USS Midway. And, uh, Let's see, they had the USS Ohlendorf, which was the only Spruance class in Japan, an Adams class destroyer that the name escapes me, and then there was four, no, three Knox class frigates. No, no, I take that back, there was four. Um, the Kirk, the, the, the Knox, the Francis Hammond, maybe there was only three, because there was only three Lampstets over there, so yeah, there was just three of those. Um, and then some support ships and, um, you know, we're over there basically to reinforce the, uh, Korean peninsula in the event of an invasion. That's pretty much why we had those forces there. Plus we're kind of like America's nine one one forces. They used to call us and we're on a pretty short leash over there, you know, basically, uh, you know, able to get underway within 72 hours notice unless the carrier went into a selected availability where it went into a dry the dry dock but then they had another carrier covering for that so so anyhow um i lobbied to get on this detachment and uh the uh one senior crewman that was assigned to it um you know he talked to our chief and uh i was able to take his place and i was going to go out now as a senior crewman with just two aws uh on this deployment and uh, we were going to forward deploy to Japan. So we formed our detachment. And actually, at the time, we knew we were going to get a brand uh, a brand new helicopter as well. New build. Get, nice. We're going to get one of the new build helicopters. And uh, it was going to be flown over to um, QB Point in the Philippines, actually. And that's where we were going to relieve the other detachment. And uh, they were going to come home with the old helicopter, which was going to go off for rework. And then we were going to commence operations. So, of course, as we, as mo both of us have discussed earlier, part of the uh, process of forming a detachment is you have to do uh, workups of some kind. Well, at the time that this was going on, uh, geopolitically speaking, um, President Reagan um, had been in office. Um, about five years almost at this point and because uh, he was elected in 80 when in, yeah he was been in office for four years 80 and 84 were the two elections he won yep so this this is uh this is 85 so he had just been reelected. he's on his second term and now his strategy in his administration was to really turn the screws on what he characterized in one of his State of the Union addresses as the evil empire, the Soviet Union. And his way of turning the screws on the Soviet Union was to get them to spend a lot of money to try to keep up with what we were doing. You know, when President Reagan took office, you know, his goal was to have the 600-ship Navy, yep. 15 carrier battle yep. groups, and like I think 12 amphibious readiness groups. I mean, a lot of stuff, right? So 
one of the things that he did was he deployed Tomahawk land attack cruise missiles with nuclear weapons to Japan, Germany, and Turkey. And that gave the Russians uh, very little uh, warning of um, a nuclear attack. And it was also a way for them to to theoretically uh, be blunted in any um, advances they might make on NATO, you know, coming from the West. That yep. was always, or, I'm sorry, coming from the East. That was always the threat because the Russians had a large number of tank divisions poised on the, you know, the Polish and East German border the and Fulda, Hungary. The Fulda Gap. Yeah, the Fulda Gap and all that. So part of that was. Uh, to try to discourage the germ oh, I'm sorry the Germans the, the Russians from attempting some kind of aggression in that regard so the one of the the Russians responses to that was they decided to move in their SSBNs or ballistic missile submarines because normally the way ballistic missile submarines operate is they operate in what's known as uh, SSBN bastions where they're basically going to be in their territorial waters where they can be covered by their own ASW aircraft as well as having um, SSM, nuclear-powered uh, attack submarines that are there basically, uh, you know, like uh, a sheepdog guarding a, a flock of sheep, right? Yep. And in these bastions, they can, they can sit in these bastions and they're pretty much they're almost in home port and operating in the high Arctic, launch their missiles from there and be safe. Well, that is good, except uh, we have a lot more warning. So their thought process was, hey, they move these land Tomahawk land attack cruise missiles in close. Now we have very little warning, so we're going to do the same thing. But what do we have that we can do? And their thought was, well, okay, we're going to move these Yankee and Delta class Nuclear-powered uh, ballistic uh, missile submarines. Now, I, I don't know um, what the exact ranges of these missiles were, but um, they could hit the United States from sitting in home port. So now they're, you know, right off the northeast coast of Hawaii up toward the uh, outlet of the uh, Straits of Juan de Fuca and then up into the Gulf of Alaska. Okay. Very close and typically... His, history, history has shown that uh, the Russian str tactical doctrine in using their str strategic uh, ballistic missile submarines was to uh, make area attacks using multi-independent reentry re vehicles against our SAC bases, where all of our B-52s were based. The MIRVs. Yeah, MIRVs. The thought was at the time that they did not have the accuracy with their SSBNs to be able to hit actual missile silos, but they could definitely drop one in on top of a SAC base and take that out. Um, so the U.S., of course, uh, knows this is going on, and our, our response was, okay, we're going to send a, a nothing, an ASW task group out there and I was involved in this ASW task group which consisted of the USS Truxton which is where the Commodore was embarked which is a nuclear powered cruiser cruiser yep and then there was uh, three detachments from my squadron 
Um, one of them had the Marconi um, Sonobuoy processor. One had an SDC on board, a sonar data computer, um, so they could process buoys internally. And then we had the baseline with with nothing fancy. <laughs> and then there was a an HSL 35 detachment out there too, and they had an SDC. And I don't know if there was a 30. I know that I know for a fact there was a 35 detachment out there because I think Jerry Ketstever was one of the AWs on it. And I don't think 33 was involved in this. Okay, um, so when you say SDC... Maybe, they, maybe you did, I don't remember. I know 35 was out there. Um, when you say STC, you mean the Bendix... Uh, the sonar data computer, yeah. The, the, basically, it looks just like the sonar scope, but you could display the waterfall on there. Okay, the, what uh, was the other one you the, said, the first one? The Marconi of Canada. So these are like test beds then. Because when they yeah. when they when they make the G models, they ended up they ended up going with the the Bendix system, right? The Bendix SDC. I um I think so. It was I like a, so. it was like a big the whole thing was a big box that you can tilt up out of the way, right? right. And part of this yeah, yeah and okay. part of the process here was to evaluate these systems to see which ones the Navy really wanted to buy. Yeah, yeah. okay. Too. So it was in addition to being a real strategic mission it also had an evaluation process to it because um they did uh it was officially known as aram sherem 84 dash something or other 85 dash something or other okay and I then they also i remember had, news of this i remember hearing about um bendix and marconi but i didn't know it was you know there was an actual exercise involved too yeah, plus it was the real-world mission that we are doing, so it was the perfect, you know, test vehicle. I mean, sure, per sure. perfect context of doing these uh, evaluations, real-world targets, right? Yep. And then there was also two Spruance classes um, that had an H3 apiece on board. An H3, really? Yeah, yeah, with oh. a dipping sonar. So there was a pretty extensive um, task group. Did um, that, it was pure. And were all the surface combatants, did they have total ray? sonar yep yeah i mean the ship the, the ship we we're on i forgot to say was the robert e perry which was ff 1073 which had the v the the sqs 35 which was the variable depth sonar of which they could attach the tail onto and then lower it down like a lot like 1500 feet wow okay and they could get it down into the deep sound channel you know and uh which is another propagation path and get pretty long ranges with it. So we went through the normal process of, uh, of getting ready to go, of course, you know, back at the squadron, you know, like Mike and I have talked about, you get the cage um, with all your tools and all your pubs and you get your helicopter. You know, of course, we had our nice brand new right out of the factory helicopter, which was pretty cool. Still baseline, though. <laughs> yeah, but it's still baseline everything. We went, we went. The one we went was uh, the only thing that it had that the other ones didn't have. We had the bigger ox tanks on it. Oh, you went you to know. sea with hundred gallon ox tanks. Yep. Oh. Yep. Oh, so no. okay. uh, that was new because yeah, we we didn't start seeing hundred gallon ox tanks till after I came back. So that was late. Yeah, they came out of the factory like that. So uh, you know, we did a little bit of flying. Uh, we did some uh, as. We did a lot of ASW training, like where we were going up to the 
Barking Sands, the Pacific Missile Range facility off Kauai. And we did two or three torp drops, and we did some work with some uh, the uh, targets that they launched, which is essentially a gigantic torpedo. And, uh, and we did some of that and uh, got pretty well uh, up to speed, ready to go. And uh, so we headed out there, and uh, we started doing our thing. And it was uh, really, really exciting because this is the real thing. I mean, we're doing – I mean, we're – having briefings every day about hey there's th there's like there was like a victor three out there a delta three you know a, a yankee two you know in the area that where we're at and we actually got on top time of all three of these submarines at at any given time like um but in the beginning of this exercise because we're out to sea for probably about three maybe somewhere between three and four weeks before we're going to pull into seattle for the Seattle Seafair, which was also another cool thing about going on this debt, right? Because we're going to go to Seattle, and then we're going to go to Vancouver, you know, and then yep. we're going to go home. So there's some pretty good liberty, you know, carrots. At the end coming. of it. At the end of at, it, yeah. Yeah, kind of at the end of it, right? So, um, but up in the initial part of this was all passive, and not to mention the, the ships out there, we had... 24-hour continuous P3 coverage out there. Yeah, because ADAC's like right there. Well, they were coming out of Moffat. That's how close we were, right? Where they, oh. and, and coming out of Barber's Point. So, and it was to the point where like, and a heli there was always one on station, always. There was never one not on station. So now we're doing a lot of what we call coordinated ASW. Yeah, yeah. And the interesting thing about this, Mike, was I was picking up stuff when we're getting these CPAs oral listening and then like time late they're calling this stuff out <laughs> because they weren't listening to their buoys no no they're they're just that's what I said to the yeah. to the pilots I'm like yep I got a I got a transient I just heard a bang or a clunk or something I think he uh I think he might be turning and then like about three minutes later they like radio yeah we think he's turning to the left you know, I'm serious. That that was what was uh, what was, was going on because right? they're watch they're just watching the uh, the, the grams, lines, the yeah. grams. Yeah. yeah, and they weren't they might not have been getting direct path, although I think they were because we were getting some pretty good. I mean, ridiculous CPAs. So, um, I mean, yeah, they, their submarines are loud too. You know, these are older nuclear boats, right? Like second generation nuke nuke boats before the Walkers. You know, uh, well, type two three nukes, right? Yeah, it's Charlie Victor Yankee yep. Delta. Where the but, you know, at the time, the Victor Three was a state-of-the-art boat. You know, that was yeah. like a, a really good boat for them. And then the last 24 hours, you know, was it's hammer time, which in ASW speak means we're going to go active. And so the H3s, they were further north, and they were dipping on these deltas. We're but we got we got active contact on the freaking diecast buoys that we we're data, data linking, and I'm getting RO off the, you know, with the, you know, RO114 on this freaking Yankee, and then we're getting mad contact on this thing. So this is like, you know, this is just like I'm in like hog heaven, right, in the sure. back of the doing all of this stuff, right? Because you're you're localizing. Yeah, and, I mean, getting we, an attack, we got attack it down vectors. to like, okay, we got attack. We told the the boat we got attack criteria. That's all they wanted to do was see how fast we could convert from a 
tail contact, passive contact. All right. Now the ship's going to go active. They got contact. They stopped pinging. And then we dropped buoys. And we got contact and we're tracking them, data linking. And, and then they say, okay, go in, Vectac, boom, madman, madman. And this is at night, smoke away. So we see the, yeah. you know, it's the uh, well, the smoke, you the know. Trail. Lit. Yeah, and, trail and I sorts. got like six mads in a row on this freaking thing. And uh, and then they, you know, basically at some point, Alpha X-Ray there, the the Admiral, the Commodore, says, all right, that's a Finex, time to pull in for some beer, fellas. <laughs> <laughs> pretty pretty much and uh yeah so we we finexed we landed and like uh literally like a next day or maybe yeah i think it was the next day we pulled into seattle and did the seafarer thing and had a great time and like myself and one guy from the ship got got selected by the cap i mean i got nominated by my oic and then the captain picked one guy from the ship and we got a uh, a private tour of the rainier beer brewery and a and like this a catered meal and because there was guy representatives from every ship nice. you know, that pulled in for that i mean we had to wear our whites and everything but i didn't care um they were like and they they were really nice i mean they, it was it was a really nice uh you know gesture of my uh oic and the captain of the ship you know all right so and, so i need some details all right so uh the truxton uh, once brew can you said no, two spruance, two spruances, one one nuclear power cruiser, and uh, four uh, Knox class frigates. Three from Hawaii, one from San Diego. Okay. So, so seven ships, um, and three H twos, two H threes. Yep. And you hunted submarines for how long three weeks at a time three weeks total about three about three weeks maybe four somewhere between three and four and and okay so uh because the whole cruise was about six six and a half weeks because the rest of it was just a liberty x transit time right transit to get there yeah we transited up to vancouver you know that was like what two days a day and a half we pulled in there for another five days then we went basically straight back to hawaii Nice. All right. So, and the whole the whole thing was to find. So now, how did how did the various platforms do? Well, one of my buddies was in HS fourteen on the H three, and they were they pretty much kicked that Delta's ass when they went active. They were doing they were doing two helicopters dipping on a freaking SSBN. There was no way he was getting away. I mean, they held con- like continuous contact on them until they basically. Ran out of you know started yeah. running low on gas you know okay and um, and the Marconi and the Bendix situation uh. I don't I I don't know exactly how well they performed but as far you know verbatim I can't really remember now but I I know that the the, the whole thing was highly successful um you know the P threes had them on in all the time I mean they knew where these guys were all the time. We could have we could have hammered them, dropped the torp on them anytime we wanted to. The only submarine that we had trouble that getting the, that would give us the slip was that Victor Three. That was a little bit more uh, difficult, and we actually caught him one time trying to do that classic get underneath the merchant mer- merchant ship because uh, we found him tr- uh, tracking underneath a uh, one of those auto carriers. <laughs> 
I was gonna. We, I, I was about to say if, if he gave you the slip, then the boat driver was probably not not new, right? He had some experience. Right. Yep. And the the other thing too, Mike, is um, you know, we're doing this real world. We're using the uh, crypto gear. You know, the KY uh, twenty eight or whatever twenty uh, eights yeah. the whole time, and that's a pain in the ass. Yes, it is. Holy smokes, you know, is that stuff stupid? Yeah. Yeah, so that was difficult, and we're also, you know, having to keep an accurate plot. You know, we're doing relative plots. You know, we weren't doing geo plots because we, we didn't have any reference. You know, other because the ships were basically MCON. they didn't have their tachans on, because that gives them away, right? Well, if it's if you're a submarine, and you're at snorkel depth, I'm sure they had us counter detected uh, quite a bit as well. But well, they probably heard you coming. Yeah, right. but then, you know, we didn't know if there was, like, bear activity out there or, you know, what was going on. They didn't want to be emitting. The ships weren't emitting hardly anything, which which wound up one of the one of the things that uh, uh, came up, like, when we went further north in this, in this uh, operation, kind of in the southern part of the Gulf of Alaska, um, that time of the year, you know, because remember, that's the Kurishio current that comes up from Japan. It's a warm water current that comes up into the Gulf of Alaska gets modified and basically becomes cold. That's why the water's so damn cold off of uh, California, right? Yeah, yeah. Because that current starts off of Japan, like around Okinawa, goes all the way up and then comes down, and it's it's cold water. By the, it's the opposite of the uh, um, Gulf Stream, right? It's because of the Coriolis force of the Earth sure, and all that stuff. So... Um, you know, that was the other thing they wanted to evaluate, the water conditions, how that worked with these different sensors. Because we were dropping Cadillacs out there, too. I mean, uh, VLAD buoys. And, of course, we called them Cadillacs because the things at the time, they cost about, what, 15, 15 grand a piece or some crazy thing like that. You dropped VLAD Mighty. buoys out of an H2? Oh, yeah. We dropped a whole, a whole loadout. We had, like, one 15. BT buoy. No, we had two BTs in case one failed, and we'd have 13 VLADs. Wow. We'd land, hot pump, drop, load another buoy, you know, hot load the launcher, and then off we'd go. And then uh, um, then I'd get out, and then Gail would get in and go fly. I mean, we were flying, you know, pretty much continuously. We'd shut down just to grease the tail rotor and do a turnaround and uh, keep on going. And with this During this intense 24-hour period, we flew almost continuously. So it was a good... It was a very good exercise, and you're doing it real world. Like this is a basically like quasi combat type conditions. Sure, right? sure. So it was a good evaluator for the the powers to be to see how reliable these this equipment was, to see if all of these you know processes that they put in place with the tack tack manuals and stuff like that you know, would, would work, you know, and then what kind of water performance, uh, what kind of water was out there and how is it a, the sound propagation pass and, and all that, because they needed that data because if the Russians were going to be hanging around up, they'd never hung out there before. So that was another big part of it was gathering all of this, uh, oceanographic data that didn't really exist at that time. So it was, you know, I was a, uh, you know, I was a very, 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 very small little part of this whole thing. You know, I was just a sensor operator in a helicopter, you know, in the, in the whole big picture of all this. And and, and Truxton was Alpha X-ray coordinating everybody. Yep. Yeah. And, did they, and, did uh, they do a good job? They, 
yep yep they did um you know and we never really saw them either we saw them one day when the whole group got together for like photographs and stuff um, that, that surprises I, I think me. I, land, I think I might have landed on it that day too for some reason. I think maybe I, yeah, I want, you know, it's like kind of fuzzy, but I think we landed over there and we took like the captain of our ship over there for a conference or something like that. Cause that was before we had the active thing. It was like a couple of days before that, they, all the ships rendezvoused, you know, yeah. so they could take the pictures, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, which I, unfortunately I never got any, but. Um, I find it surprising they had like that ship's captain conference over there. I, f- I find it surprising that that they detached a cruiser to be Alpha X-ray because a, a cruiser's job is typically anti-air, you know, pickets. When you think, I of think a, that's we, why we, they we, had that cruiser out there for anti-air in case that you know there was any bears came around. So, so one of the Spruance should have been Alpha X-ray then, if if the if the cruiser's alpha alpha whiskey, right? Alpha whiskey's anti air. Alpha X rays anti submarine. Yeah, the Commodore was on the. Yeah, but the Commodore was. Uh, he might have been both warfare commanders too. Okay. Yeah, you know, he right. might have been wearing both hats. Interesting. Although, it's interesting. Although typically in a carrier battle group, Alpha whiskey is the senior captain on the cruiser, Aegis class cruiser, typically. Yeah. And Alpha X ray is the Desron um, Commodore. Or sometimes the senior escort, you know, um, ASW escort commanding officer is Alpha X-Ray. It just depends. Um, this, well, but this was kind of a unique, this was like a, this wasn't even a surface action group. This was a, a dedicated ASW uh, task group. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Which is something that the Navy hadn't done in a long time. So I think they were flexing a lot of muscles here. And they kind of, I think... Uh, um, you know, the, the geopolitical situation dictated that the, the Navy needed to respond. The United States needed to respond. So, you know, I was one little tiny little cog in the uh, the wheel of the final uh, <laughs> acts of the of the Cold War, you know. Sure. But, you know, it makes for a good story. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, it was really cool, you know, and uh, it was a little bit we weren't uh, uh, too sure, but they were going to let us do it. But uh we painted the, uh, you know, we had our sauna buoy launcher cover, and we painted the silhouette of a Delta, uh, 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 not a Delta, but a uh, a Yankee and a an, uh, Victor Three, and uh, we had lines for the days that we had contact underneath them. Nice. And uh, that was kind of cool. They they let us do it. We we pulled in the port because we we did the dog and pony show, uh, you know, open house stuff. And uh, so, who were the pilots? Uh, it was Lieutenant Commander uh, Ron Gibbs was the OIC. Uh, Lieutenant Steve Green was our maintenance officer. Um, Lieutenant uh, Dean Howerton was our OPSO. And then Lieutenant Junior Grade uh, DeMeo was our um, admin. admin officer. ATC uh, Hadley was our uh, debt chief. And he's the guy I was telling you about, Bill Hadley. He was this Healy. That's it, not Hadley. Healy. He was the greatest guy ever. Best best chief I ever worked with in the Navy, hands down. And then later on, when I got stationed in Japan, he was the maintenance chief at HS-14 before he PCS'd out of there. And it's highly unusual to see an AVCM as a maintenance master chief for a squadron. 
it's usually an AFCM. Um, but, uh, you know, he was the, but he had a lot of H2 experience. He was a, like been in H2s like almost his entire career from when he was an airman. So he knew that bird really, really good. And, and you know, here's a, not afraid it's, it's, to get his hands dirty. You know, he was one, he was one of the guys and we really, but we really respected him at the same time too. So, and, and the, okay. So this is, this I'm finding kind of unique about military and their tools. If, if you work with something, you know, when I say tools, I mean, you know, equipment, they you know, trucks, aircraft, boats, whatever. If, if you're taught or you're assigned to work on something, typically you're going to be around other people. There's going to be a range of experience, right? And the, and the yep. person that's leading the shop knows all the gotchas, right? All the standard 80, 80% of your problems are caused by these 20% of the airplanes. Does that make sense, right? Yep, yep, absolutely. So yep. they, you know, your first your first go around with this is you're learning that and you can fix most everything, right? Then you have the next level dudes that know all the stuff that comes along very rarely, but they, they're still, since they're around it so much, they remember it and they can impart the lesson on you when the crazy thing shows up once every, you know, 2000 hours across the fleet of whatever aircraft that is. And they know about it. But to spend 30 years, or 20, call it 20, right? It's a standard 20 years working on one airplane's avionics. Yep. Holy smokes. Could you imagine? He He's seen everything. Yep. The dude's seen everything because you just Yeah, you, and, you and just not only him. was he an avionics like guy by training, but he knew, he was a full systems QA, and he knew all about the engines, the transmissions. You can't not. All, all of that you stuff. Can't, I mean, even as a, even as a dumb plane captain, right? Where you get the most, you know, rudimentary. Well, I'd say a little bit better. Okay, it's a little bit higher than rudimentary. I mean, you know the systems enough to know when there's something wrong to call yep. in someone who knows how to fix it. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, that's what you our know, job is as know, a plane captain, right? You know, uh, but the plane captain is the lowest level of maintenance personnel yep. in a, in. In an H two squad, I don't know how it worked in HS or you know fixed wing no, or anything. It, that you know, was the same. The same. You know, yep. it's the lowest, the the first basic building block of your maintenance experience. So if they, if everybody, you know, in a lamp's debt, as plane captain qualified because they they typically are or were at some point in their career, right, or will be, right. You know these basic things. Now you take that and you keep building on top of it for twenty years. Yeah, you're gonna. Even out of your area, you're gonna know. Well, that you know, if you're not an aid, you're not a jet mechanic. But, oh, that doesn't sound right, or that doesn't look right, or it doesn't smell right, or there shouldn't be a leak there. Yeah, we Did, and we had some really, we had some really good chiefs in that squadron too. And, we had two yeah. guys that had been HC seven, H two air crewmen when they when they were like airmen and third class, second class maybe. Uh, in Vietnam on, uh, you know, Yankee Station. So these guys, we had a lot of respect for. One of our uh, our machinist mate chief, uh, shop chief, was one of those guys. And then we had another chief 
that was the line chief that was also a former HC7 guy. And I think he was, uh, I'm trying to remember what his rate was. I think he was like an AMH or something. And both of those guys were, were, you know, really good. And, um, you know, they were the guys that went out. I mean, one of the guys, we were having some problems with like an engine mount when I was on that debt before we were deployed. And he came out there and he said, yeah, you got a bad engine mount. He could just tell by, you know, opening up the cowling and getting up underneath there and listening to it. And he's like, yep, I can tell you got a medium frequency vibration. Yeah, it's a, it's an engine mount bolt is loose or something. Sure enough, that's what it was. And I was like, holy shit. This guy's freaking rain man here. Dude, I mean, they they work on these planes every day. Yeah. Every single day they're fixing something. Yep. You know, and it's some some of it's simple, like remove and replace a black box, right? Because at the operational level, that's all you're really allowed to do. But you yep. have to have some troubleshooting skill to know which black box to replace. That's right. Um, you know, on the mechanics on the mechanical side, you had to know all the the insides and outs of that stupid T fifty eight, and you know which stage does what, and you know what. What's supposed to happen when and all, and and if you're rounded enough, yeah, you could hear it because you have a baseline. You have a baseline of of what a normal sounding at you know what's what is the before you move to the fly right. You start the motors and they're at, they're at idle. What percentage of What was oh, it? Yeah. Was it NR? Not NR. What? What? Shoot. See. Well, you ha- well N- NF is the power turbine, right? Thank you. Yeah. You know, NF was at a certain percentage before you know you un- release the rotor brake, rotor brake, and and then move the the engines to fly. But still, you know, they and just think of all those people across the H two service life. Nineteen fifty nine, right? When they first entered the service in nineteen fifty nine. I'm not, and I'm not going to try to talk about reservists because I can't tell you when the last reserve squadron went away. But you know, 1994 was the last active duty squadron, so wasn't too much longer after that for the reserves so either. So that's 35 years, right? 35 years of all the people that worked on these airplanes, and that knowledge just went poof, <laughs> right? Well, you what's can, interesting you, to uh, is uh, I kind of uh, got a little bit uh, screwed up on some things because we, like I and just like the fog of my memory, you know, like I said, we did all this stuff and we didn't go to Vancouver. We went to Ketchikan, Alaska, and we were the first ship to visit Ketchikan, Alaska over the 4th of July since World War II. And I can't remember if we went to Ketchikan and then we went to Seattle or we went to Seattle and then we went. I just don't remember. Honestly, I have to go back and look in my my logbook would probably give me some So this was of summer that. of 1985? Yeah. But we were definitely in Ketchikan over 4th of July. And that was really cool. Really cool. Very, very uh, cool uh, to pull in there. Um, but the unique thing about going into Ketchikan was, as I recall, Right the day before that we pulled in there, main gearbox chip light. <laughs> and because I remember this now, um, 
And this was a big deal because I think um, we were going to pull in there and go play with this, uh, these submarines again and then pull into Seattle and then go home, I think, is how it went. But anyhow, um, we had to change that freaking gearbox in port. You know, we kind of started doing it while we were transiting because you got to transit through all the fjords and all that to get to Ketchikan. So we had the helicopter out on deck, so we got to get all the rotor blades off, and we made racks out of wood. Actually, our our, our MO actually uh, did did that himself. I mean, he's out there with hammer and nails making these freaking racks and stuff. Little little cradles to put the blades in. And, uh, yep, we got that freaking thing fixed, and because uh, I can remember transiting out through the fjords, doing the FCF, you know, doing the the turn and then doing the 15 minute hover check and getting it all done and we're back in business again so we had a good debt you had really good people on that uh on that detachment so we're very fortunate in that regard uh very cohesive uh uh detachment that's cool yeah the ship was good. Now, on this ship, I said we were, uh, it was a little different berthing-wise. We were actually back by the fantail, which was not so good because we're literally over the freaking uh, screw. <laughs> so if the okay. ship had to go anywhere in a hurry like rendezvous for an unwrap, you know, you got about shook, shaking right out of your rack. Um, but one interesting flying story that, that uh, I'll, I'll relate that I know that, that – uh, you'll find interesting is so here we are like i said we're doing mcon we're doing the encrypted radios and uh you know and that's i was kind of going in that direction and i sort of got off on a tangent or we went off on a different uh tack but uh so in that part of the world with that water conditions and that time of the year fog can just come up out of nowhere and you don't really get, you know, we get this, the weather from the, uh, uh, you know, I guess they send weather to the ship via satellite, you know, downlink or whatever. And then the, uh, there's no aerographer's mate. The aerographer's mate is on the flagship, right? On the yeah, Commodore yeah. staff. So all we have is the quartermasters that get a little extra training to do weather observations. Hell, I could do it just as good as what, yep, there's some clouds out there and the wind is this direction. And here's the temperature in the bronze. That's about all they did, right? And they logged that every, I think, every time they uh, come on watch. So here we are. We're out flying. We're actually doing a prosecution. I think it was the Victor Three, if I remember, that we're chasing around. Unbeknownst to us, the ship sailed into a freaking fog bank. So right? you're out. You're out flying. Yep, we're out flying, and we're going to come back into the ship. <laughs> and where's the ship? It's in the freaking fog bank. So I literally um, had shot an SCA approach to a hover, and we did a wet hyper, and we went out and chased that submarine some more. So that's some pretty real-world shit for you. Yeah, it is. That's crazy. So that was pretty cool. And then when we came back into land, it was still freaking foggy. There were we did had to do an SCA to a landing where they were th throwing the smokes over the side. Wait, say that again. They're th 
who was throwing this? Yeah, they, you're doing. They were. They, you know, you're doing the uh, the SCA, but then they're also dropping. You know, Mark fifty eights in the water as the ship is moving, kind of like so. You had something similar. You could see the smoke, so you know had some kind of a visual idea of the track of the ship, and you could start seeing the wake and all that when you get within about a half to a quarter mile because the visibility was low. It was. Um, I would say the vertical visibility was probably only a couple hundred feet, and the visibility was was less than a less than a half mile when we did so, that SCA so like, to a land. Like like you wouldn't have taken off in it. That's how bad it was, right? Yeah, we would not have taken off in it. That's crazy. And the ship would not turn on the tack in. <laughs> yep. Uh, the best we could have got from the ship was maybe a, 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 a huff duff, an HFDF, you know, steer. Yeah, yeah. But uh, fortunately, you know, we had the radar, and the radar works really, really well for that kind of a thing. And uh, I, we had been doing a lot of that kind of stuff, so I was very, we were very proficient at it. And I wasn't really that concerned, honestly. It was dead calm. There was like no sea state. It was like glass. Um, so it was really kind of just the low visibility was the problem. And the fact that the ship, they didn't tell us that they were going into the, it's what we knew the weather was, could be crap, right? Yeah. But they didn't tell us that they freaking, you know, cruised into a freaking fog bank while we're MCON, you know, how, like, oh, that's nice. Well, we still got to find the ship, right? How would they have told but, you though? Well, we're using the radios, the encrypted radios. Okay, right? so you weren't completely MCON. No, 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 not like we weren't. They weren't emitting anything. Like they didn't have their radar up, you know, to direct us around. Um, we had to keep track of them, unless there was an emergency. That was the only time they would turn the, the, uh, the, uh, what is it, the uh, SPS or uh, forty radar, the big air search radar. Because they had SPS 40 and SPS 10. Don't ask me how I can remember that shit. But anyhow, <laughs> uh, it's weird how I randomly will remember things like that. Yeah, that's how that's how your brain works, though. Yeah. So they they uh, you know they said hey uh, you know we had planned to do that hyper already. You know we were going to come in and do a wet hyper and go back out because you know we were hot on the trail of submarines and it's take too much time to come in and land and you know hot refuel no we're just gonna we're gonna get a couple thousand pounds of gas and go back out you know without landing and that's what we did and um then we had to come back and the weather was even you know more foggy nuts yeah but it was weird they sailed out of it, it was like a wall of fog and then boom right it popped right out in the clear you know, just a little bit after that. I'm, I'm seeing if I can find mention of this task force or whatever. Uh, yeah, I don't remember. It was Aram Sherem 85 something or other. Yeah, but how would you spell Aram Sherem? Just like it sounds. Because an, an Aram is an acronym for... Uh, um, I mean, you could probably look. I forget what it stood stands for. Um, you know, so let me see if I can find it here, even on the internet. A I R E M, or A R E M, like A I R E M. 
and then share with an M on the end of it. Yeah, I already, I already tried that. It comes, nothing comes up. So yeah, that doesn't uh, doesn't yield good results. Yeah. So then I'm trying. Well, to look, you could also look up like. Uh, so I was looking up the Truxton's history, right? Yeah. And on on the history.navy.mil goes only up to uh, 1978, and then says Truxton decommissioned in September of '95. But it has a nice history of the. You know the first you know 15 years of the boat on some of its important things so yeah and of course wikipedia doesn't have anything february 80 80 15 c and when a final complex overhaul puget sound uh from september of 82 to july of 84 and then in January of 86, left on our 10th West Pack as Alpha Whiskey for Battle Group F, which probably was, is Foxtrot Enterprise? Yeah, Enterprise, yep. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no mention of this uh, little Yeah, side. there's really kind of dead space between 84 and 86 here. Yeah, so what other boats were there? Uh, shoot. Do you I'm remember? I remember. Um, the other two Hawaiian. Um, what boat were you on? Let's start with that. I was on the Robert E. Perry, which was FF, FF 1073. 1073. Yeah. FF. Let's go here. FF. And I want to say that the uh, one of the spruances was the uh, the Cushing, because that's my buddy uh, Jerry was on HS 14 was on there. Bainbridge, Paducah, Bruton, Cochran, Elsia. <laughs> uh, all right, here is. No, oh, that's a date. That doesn't actually list the boat. Yeah, so this is this will be an interesting research project to see if there's anything out there. After all this time, that you know talks about the exercise and who's involved and. Uh, yeah, I'd like to talk to some Russians who are out on those submarines myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, the Russian Navy back then was not Yeah, all right. So 1073 under Navy history doesn't You know that the one, that's the, one of the things, believe it or not, that the only one of the few things I miss about Facebook, I was actually on a couple of Russian Navy uh uh pages that had some you know that were dedicated to submariners and stuff and of course you find out most of those guys are just like we were they didn't want to be out there any more than we did no but, of course not <laughs> um but uh i'm getting my log books here naval aviation. I, can... I wonder if naval aviation news had a had an article on this situation because they would be like oh, you... you remember any news oh yeah um, I was just thinking about this today, Mike. That um, Grandpa Pettibone, remember him? I have uh, somebody sent me uh, about seven or eight uh, CD-ROMs, and I've got like uh, 
one of them has almost all the aviation, naval aviation news is on there in like PDF format. And uh, remember, Command used to put out a newsletter called uh, Rotor Tips. Do I remember Rotor Tips? Um, I have all of them. Now, some of the stuff's de- dedicated to the H forty three, but there's a lot of a lot of it's H two stuff. All right. And early early H two, like single engine H two stuff. Well. All right, so the September-October 85 talks about, of course, the Centennial Naval Naval Aviation was coming up, Diamond Mm -hmm. Anniversary, uh, how the Navy's helping stop the flow of drugs, uh, Royal Naval Aviation on the frigid northern flank, uh, technology transfer. Well, I'm looking at my logbook to see if I I put the... the, the, uh, the name of this deployment in there because I had more, you know, information in there. Because I wrote down, I got the name of every ship I landed on. All right. So it's not September, October. How about July, August? Vice Admiral Martin. Right, so I found, um, so my first flight on that detachment was May 8th, 85. And that was in the helicopter that's on the USS Midway now. 150158 was our temporary debt bird. Wait, when, I have time on 150158. No, yeah. Midway's 0151, I think. Is it? Uh, give me, give well, me a second. I'll verify. If maybe 58 is the one that's in uh, the Peem Air Museum, but it's definitely in a museum. Man, I did a, we did a lot of hyphers on that. Oh one five seven is on midway. I have a picture in the hall. Oh one five seven. Uh, let's see. Uh, so nothing in the naval aviation news about this. You would think it. Would Man, be... you know what? I'm all screwed up here. Uh oh. We we didn't get that new bird. Actually, we picked it up in the Philippines. After your North Pack, right? After your yeah, yeah. after your workup cruise, because this this yeah. this was a workup for your debt. Okay. Yeah, one five zero one five eight, and then that one was one six one nine zero two, which is a, wow. it was a new new, new build aircraft. Yeah, yeah. My 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 new airplane was one six one six five one. So we left on that debt on eleven June eighty five. And well, if you if you pull the catch back, again, we got back on eight August. Yeah, so summer of eighty uh, five. Yeah, summer of eighty five. Because then my first flight in the PI and the new bird was twenty six August. So we cru- we went we departed on cruise not too long after that, but I had thought that I had written down the name of that in my logbook. I got all this other stuff in there, but that's something I didn't put in there. My other logbook I did. Let's see. Yeah, because I have all the names of the different battle groups and all that stuff that I put in my other logbook, and I didn't do that for the... That's my HS logbook. You know, because that's the, actually the aircraft I get the, the more time in. You know, I had like... Um, 1800 hours in the h2 and i had like uh 
3400 I think in the uh H60. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot of time. And a lot of that was uh going or making right turns. Oh, in the starboard D. In the starboard D, yep. Crap, I don't have that, Mike, that info. That would require um a lot more research. But it's attainable. You just go through, I guess, the uh, uh, Navy uh, historic Navy history. Uh, yeah. Um, so I'm I'm digging through right. Or the National Archives, even. So I'm I'm, I'm digging through, and I come across, and I'm I'm like I said, I'm searching the uh, Naval Aviation News back back issues, and in the January August, not January, July August '85, there's a, a an article about a dude. The transition from H2s to F-14s. I remember that. First tour, during his first tour, then Lieutenant Scott flew this SH-2C Sprite for North Island-based HSL-33. I have no idea who this guy is. He must know somebody. Now, he's definitely a renaissance man. Interesting article. Florida State. Student composer for the University Jazz Orchestra. Tuh. Interesting. One page article. Well, I got nothing. And I'm sure the people listening See, would love to hear, this- love love the silence as I research. <laughs> <That's> a- yeah. <laughs> Uh, oh, see, HSL-35 is in this issue, too. Uh, HSL-35 surpassed 10,000-hour 10, 10, flight hour mark. Huh. Interesting. Sorry. You were going to say? Um, the uh, Cushing looks like it had been used for quite a few different ASW evaluations. It was like uh, one of the first Bruins class to be equipped with the uh, SQR-15 um, towed array. The TAS towed array. Yep, towed array sonar, yep. Or SIRTAS, right? It was SIRTAS because TAS Well, SIRTAS was the, were those civilian ships that, that did that. Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought SIRTAS had... was surface towed array. No, th- those were the uh, USNS that did okay. the Surtas thing. That was a, a longer um, array. The one that we had on the uh, on the ships was uh, somewhere between that and what the submarines had, because the submarines have a towed array also. Correct. That's why they had that little bump that runs the length of the fuselage. Fuselage, the hull, duh. <laughs> Come on, when you're an airplane driver, everything looks like an airplane. Yeah, that's true. All right. Well, all right, so maybe we should get back on track here, or if not, you know, bring it to a close. Yeah, because we can bring it to a close. Because we're, just, we can... we're just dead air as, we're, as, yeah. as the internet has become a distraction. Um, but, yeah, I'm going to have to look look that up because it's some somebody somewhere wrote – some sort of evaluation or um, some sort of conclusion from this exercise that 
by now is declassified and has to be out there. So it'll be interesting to to uh, to see what the what that's you know if it's findable and what the conclusion was. Yeah. So all right. Um. Well, before we wrap up, then I guess we should uh, issue the standard request for feedback. Emails uh, are greatly welcomed and encouraged. As you can see, if we get one, we'll try to address it, as I air quote, on the air, you know, live, recorded, rather than write back. Um, you know, so you can reach either of us at mike at navalair.net or scott at navalair.net, and we'd love to hear from you. Um, what do you suppose we're going to talk about next time? Is it time to talk about your forward deployment time? time yeah, in Japan? I think so, yeah. Okay. Um, we hit all the high points, I think, for the north back. Okay, so yeah, so next time we'll uh, we'll hear about Scott's adventures in Japan and their easy life of pulling out for a week, back in port for a week, out for two days, back in port for a week. Right? Is that how? Yeah, it went? because when we when we took, uh, went over there, the Midway was coming back from a full-on Persian Gulf Indian Ocean deployment, so easy life and, and was going to be going into the dry dock in japan that just i find that interesting yeah all right Kuska, yeah so we'll, we'll right. uh we'll talk about that next time um any anything else you wanted to say before we go no just uh like mike said uh we encourage any and all uh to uh send us an email or also uh we're still soliciting anyone that would like to be a contributor because that is really what the goal yes join is us join of, us on the of, air yeah of, of us continuing to do this to uh put our voices out there um with the uh thought process of encouraging other veterans to uh share their stories and not just h2s not just helicopters uh anything to do with naval aviation yes because uh, go fast stories can be fun too i suppose yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Anything, especially, and really, uh, you know, any period of course is welcome. But we're we're kind of focusing in uh, from that period when Mike and I uh, served in the uh, Lamps community, um, because those folks are just like us. We're we're not getting any younger, so and we not need to remember, get these... and obviously not remembering everything clearly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my, my tonight was my classic example of that because. Um, I got. I think I got some timelines uh, crossed. A little bit uh, crossed there. Yeah, I apologize for that. No worries, man. No worries. Um, so yeah. So if you if you'd like to join us, we're all, we're uh, open and, and welcoming that as well. All right. Well, with all with all the other standard brief items uh, checked off, I'm going to close with our with our standard goodbye of. To thank you for listening, to stay safe, and God bless.